Welcome to Two Lit Mamas, a kid-lit podcast for parents, teachers, and writers, and anyone who loves children's books. I'm Heather Kaufman-Peters. I'm the mother of one college boy, a former homeschooler, a preschool teacher, and a writer. And I'm Margie Ozimet. I'm the mom of two boys, a middle school teacher, a former homeschooler, and a writer. Welcome to episode 59. Oh my gosh. Our last <laughs> episode of 2022. I don't know. I feel like every every year since 2020, I'm like, I'm happy to see it go. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I know, right? Eventually, we'll get a year where we feel like this was our year. <laughs> right? I don't know. I, I'm waiting for that one, and it's been 50 so far. Um, <laughs> Heather and I need a little break to get ready for the holidays. And um, so that's usually, you know, our job because that's that's what happens. Right. Um, and um, so, yeah, we're going to take a little break, and we'll be back in the 1st of January with that's more right. kid-lit discussions for you. In the meantime, let's discuss, um, are you what? ready for Christmas? Um, yeah, I think so. I mean, normally I would have all my shopping done by now, but I don't. So that's I do. a little freaky. You do? I do. I'm I do. so proud of you. I do. Because why? Because I have to organize myself. So I have to, I have to like get things organized, get things done ahead of the game because I'm tired. I've spent literally, I've spent since August 15th on in a state of utter just dishevelment between running to soccer, running back from soccer. There's like a brief little interlude where indoor soccer hasn't started yet. Outdoor soccer has finished. And I need that for peace. I need that little, there's like few weeks of December just to be able to survive the rest of the mayhem. Mm-hmm. So I'm really good about getting it all done ahead of time. I love now, it. Is it wrapped? No. Will it be? No, not until the very last minute. My problem is, is I have a college kid. I don't even know what to get him. Like he doesn't want anything. He doesn't need anything. I feel like that was a nine-year-old. I mean, for reals, the struggle is real. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of nice, I guess. We don't have to focus on consumerism so much. We can just have fun, but. Yeah, but then when you don't focus on consumerism, you feel guilty for not consuming for them. (laughs) That's true. I know. Like if there's not stuff for them to open under the tree, it's a little sad, right? Maybe you should take a trip. Oh gosh. I keep thinking about that. I would love that 100%. Love to take a trip. With my two guys, just go. That would be awesome. Go somewhere good. Go somewhere where the dollar is stronger. (laughs) (laughs) Might I suggest Turkey? There you go. And it's gorgeous there, I hear. It is. It's not It's not gorgeous this time of year. It's just a little bit chilly this time of year. Ooh, I like this idea of talking about like an international trip for the holidays, especially because of the topics we got going on today. I can't wait. I know. I'm really psyched for today's, today's chat. It's a nice little change of pace. It is. We have like a little special gift for y'all. So I can't wait. A gift, it's for Hanukkah, Christmas, anything that you want it to be. It's our gift from us to you. That's great, right? What did I miss? Oh, Kwanzaa. It could be a Kwanzaa gift. It's too Diwali. late to be a Diwali. It could, it was, it's too late for Ramadan. Well, it's, or it's, these are really, really early for Ramadan, but yeah, yeah, it's good. All right. Well, maybe we should just get started on that so we don't keep people hanging or wondering what's happening today. I kind of, I don't know. I like the mystery. You like the mystery? Should we <laughs> hang on to the mystery longer? Hang on to the mystery. No, that's all right. All right. All right. Let's get started. So welcome to our last book chat for 2022. 
Margie, do you want to share a little bit about this special gift we have for our listeners today since you are the one that arranged it? I will. I am so psyched for this. So we are, today we're going to have a, actually, we're going to talk about a book a little bit, but most importantly, we're going to talk to the author. And this is an an author who really speaks my language. It's a book called Parenting with an Accent, How Immigrants Honor Their Heritage, Navigate Setbacks, and Chart New Paths for Their Children by Masha Rumor. Uh, It's always Masha, Masha, Masha. (laughs) (laughs) Frequent reference there. Um, Anyway, so she's an award-winning journalist and freelance writer who's been published in the New York Times, Parents.com, and many, many other impressive publications. And this book came out in 2021. And it's um, really, it's just getting re-released in, what's the opposite of Paperback. paperback. I was like, what's the opposite yeah. of hardcover? Softback? <laughs> no, paperback. So it's in, yeah. and it's getting coming out in paperback. And um, we want to talk about it because we have a lot, we have a lot in common. And Heather has got a lot to uh question us about. Hello, hello, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Uh Margie and Heather, it's so nice to meet you. It's nice, nice to, to meet you too. I feel like we know each other. I've said my husband when I finished reading the book, I'm like, I feel like we could go out for dinner with them and really have a nice conversation. <laughs> I actually, I would love that. That would be amazing too. <laughs> it's so funny because I was telling Heather, I'm like, it's like, you, my husband's name is Gokhan. And I'm like, it's like, it's flipped all of a sudden, like she's Gokhan and her husband's me. And it's like, everything makes total sense. So it's very fun. Very good. We learned a lot from reading your book. That's for sure. <laughs> Thank you so much. Is it, are you get, getting good, pre- good press and stuff or? Uh, trying. It's a process. I just released the the paperback and um, yeah. the, the hard, co- I mean, I'm getting, I'm getting pretty good press. I'd say, I mean, it's, it's always a process, especially since the hardcover came out during the pandemic. Yeah. It was, it was not, not, not something I recommend, but yeah, it's, it's, yeah, we're trying, but thank you for asking. We've been trying to highlight a lot of the books that came out during the 2020 and 2021, just because of that. I know it was so hard for authors during that time. And I sent it, my friend is a, my, one of my dear friends is the, she's a neuropsychologist in Philadelphia at, at the, at one of the children's hospitals. And um, I was telling her about this book and now she's like, oh, okay. So I've recommended it to every neuropsychologist that I know in the pediatrics because they have so many kids that are, you know, like bicultural parents. And it was, she's like, it's great. It's so great. So yeah, we're, we're, we're trying to get you. We're trying to push it out there for you. Oh my goodness. It I, I really do appreciate it. And especially it's, it's always so nice to have the, I think the representation of like, sometimes there are two, two partners or sometimes, you know, the mom is from somewhere else, or if it's a, you know, the, like a, a father and mother family, um, yeah. sometimes the mom is an immigrant, sometimes the dad is an immigrant, sometimes they're both immigrants from somewhere else. So it's always nice to have that representation. And sometimes you feel like you live in a little bubble in that world, don't you? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Like you're like, oh God, everyone's, <laughs> sometimes I'm like, are we the only freak show around? <laughs> <laughs> this is weird. <laughs> like, okay, everybody. Yeah. Before we get started, Masha, can you give us a little summary of Parenting with an Accent, just so our listeners know what it's about? Absolutely. So Parenting with an Accent is a nonfiction book. Um, the way I like to describe it, it's a book that I wish I had when I first had kids um, and it didn't exist. So I decided to write it. Uh, basically, it's a nonfiction book, which is part memoir about my experiences as an immigrant um, and as somebody who grew up in the former Soviet Union and also as a parent navigating parenting in a new culture as, as a newcomer. But it's also kind of an anthropological study and a, and a research project. Um, where I interviewed 
more than 60 people all over the United States over the period of approximately four years. And where I spoke to immigrants who speak 18 different languages other than English at home. So I tried to get a large swath of the population. And I also included tips and just general insights from practicing experts. Um, that includes uh, people who work you know, in sociology, who look at immigrants and uh, immigrant psychology, including those specializing in trauma. And uh, especially experts in uh, language acquisition. So uh, mostly uh, professors who teach and practice at some leading institutions uh, in this field in the United States and also beyond the United States. Yeah, it's so well researched. I mean, it is so everything. It is like a, a, a master class. And it's so funny because right now we're talking, I'm teaching essays in one of my 10th grade classes. And I'm like, this is like a master class in how to cite your sources, <laughs> like <laughs> how to introduce your source, how to use your source, how to make it look, if, how does it flow smoothly? Yeah, it's really. And so you said four years. Yeah, I mean, it was. So it started first as, I mean, it's always, so immigrant identity has always been on my mind, obviously, when I moved here, but especially when I started working as a journalist, I, I've covered a variety of beats, like I was a general you know, news reporter for a small paper, then I had the more of an editorial focus for finance and business, like at Dow Jones Newswires. But my my heart was always in immigration stories and specifically what it's like for us to live in a new country. I did a piece like about how immigrants embrace online dating, <laughs> um, especially when their cultures are fairly conservative when it comes to that. And so it's it's always been something I thought about. How do you place yourself and reinvent yourself? In a new country, maybe the English, you know, maybe the person already has great English. Maybe they even have, you know, a green card already or a passport. But there's still so much more to navigate. And sometimes these experiences are so small and maybe hard to even notice uh, by, you know, a regular bystander, but they mean so much to us. Yeah. You know, sometimes it can be a reference we don't understand and it throws us off or somebody asking us where we're from and then no actually where are you really from um or there might be microaggressions uh, there might be issues of you know just racism uh, or colorism or other types of discrimination that might not even be visible to everybody else but we notice um sometimes it's not even intended that way or sometimes it actually is intended that way unfortunately like my mother speaking very loud to my husband because she thinks that's going to help him understand something he doesn't understand better oh yeah she's done she's been doing this for 16 years and she's like no no he didn't get it that doesn't mean speak louder right like my mother-in-law will speak slower so I get it but my mom just speaks louder it's like no 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 this will help him get it no that's so funny yeah it's actually I'm I'm rereading the book about my Antonia uh, Bebula Cather which was written in like in the middle of a century but it's about the 19th century immigrants and there there's also a character who speaks extra loudly mm-hmm. for immigrants to understand that's my mom that's <laughs> universal yeah mm-hmm. i know i've told you briefly i was the immigrant for a while when we moved so my husband is an immigrant we he has been in the u.s for about 20 years now off and on we started out when we after we first got married we moved back to turkey for three years so we got to like swap the shoe for lack of a better term that's so we got to kind of you know both play it both ways and i think that was the best thing for our marriage that probably ever could have happened because it helped me understand everything about the, well, help me learn his language, first of all. And I think that it's really hard to have a solid bicultural relationship if only one person only speaks one language, you know what I mean? If, I think it's really hard. Um, it, it did also, we were just in Turkey this summer and my kids were totally freaked out. They were like, mom, I just wasn't ready for that. I wasn't ready for you to just like jump in and start speaking Turkish with everyone. That is incredible that you have that level of, that, that level of uh, fluency that you can 
it's survival. It's yeah. totally came from survival because nobody in Turkey spoke English with us, you know, and I had my first baby over there and, you know, you have to, parenting teaches you a lot about a, a, a culture really fast. Yeah. Really fast. Yeah. You know, so um, I think that everyone should live in their other person's culture for at least a longer extended period of time, because I think it brings you closer. It helps you understand. It helps you commiserate because you, you've been in those shoes. And, and then, you know, ultimately we decided to return to the U S but we still go back and forth, you know? So um, it's, I think, you know, we're, we're pretty straight up right down the middle. Cause I also learned a lot about his culture, his traditions and stuff like that. And it helped me to understand his family better. So I think that, you know, we parent straight up down the middle, like um, as a bicultural family, I tend to be a little more harshly American sometimes. And he gets to be a little more like wishy-washy, but we have very Turkish mama's boys as children. And um, I think it's, there are so many things in the book though, that I just kept laughing. And I'm like, like, so let me jump in first. Like when you go on, went on dates at the beginning to the Russian restaurant, can you, you talk about that in the book and you went to, on a date to the Russian restaurant with a couple of different people and then your husband. So tell us about, so can you talk a little bit about that? Because my husband did the same thing to me. He took me to a Turkish restaurant. Oh, wow. And actually, can I ask you first, what, what was like, did he have like this dish? that that was like the deal breaker that everybody had to somebody had to really understand uh, before things forward. lucky for him I had already been to Turkey so I was kind of I was it was pretty I'd been to Turkey before I met him yeah on a research scholarship uh, when I was a teacher in Philadelphia so I'd already been there met that done that so but yes it was it's rocket if you will drink rocket then you are good to go because it's sort of like ouzo it's it's like the national drink of Turkey and if you can sit down and order a rocket you are you're good to go. And I did. I'm not, a, I, I don't drink it. And now <laughs> because it really knocks you down, but yeah, so that was, it was, a, that was the breaker. Like, is she really going to be able to handle this? And it, it worked. And know? yes, she is. <laughs> yeah. Cheers Six that. weeks later, we were married. <laughs> oh, wow. That's, that's amazing. I, I love that, that, that speed of the progression of things. Like you need to try the dish and one, you know, once you're in, you're really in. Because for me, it's yep. about three months as well. Yeah. Well, you know, you know. Yeah, yeah. You know, you know. And your husband, you, you just had, you just knew he was fine with everything. He was ready to be Russian, yeah, ready to I embrace mean, all and, things and, and, Russian. I should, I should just mention, like, since we're talking about Russian, my family is from Russia, but also my ancestors are from Ukraine and from Belarus. And we have yeah. relatives now or had up until the war began in, in Ukraine and they had to evacuate. So when I talk about Russia, it's, it's filled with a lot of. Because then I'm absolutely uh, appalled by the war and I hope the invasion. Yeah, it's muddy waters right now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But just, just throwing it out there. Um, yeah, no, thank yeah. you, thank you. <laughs> sure. Um, but yeah, so so I came to the United States when I was 13. Um, and by that time I was, uh, I mean, my a lot of my food preferences and cultural, I guess, experiences were pretty deeply ingrained. And I grew up with a lot of scarcity. Um, so there was very little food to eat. I would used to like stand in line for flour. We used to have coupons that you could only get so much, like a certain number of pounds of, I forgot how many sugar or yeah, sugar. It was very limited. Um, you know, we had to ration everything and often we just didn't have things available. So we, people had to get really creative. Like you can, I remember when the pandemic began, I was like, oh, we got this, you know, here's a can of tuna and here are five things you can make with it. Then of course, like, <laughs> like what is going on? <laughs> this is no longer funny. Um, right. It's not just a meme. It's really serious. But um, yeah. So I also, in my, some of my family members lived during the siege of Leningrad um, during world war two, where people like aid glue off the walls and holy man, lots of people 
perished as a result of that. I, my family also lived through Holodomor, um, which was the Ukrainian genocide by Stalin. Uh, my grandma was uh, living with the family at the time and they were very poor. And so anyway, so this, this stories of poverty and the devastation during World War II and and, you know, under, you know, the, the Soviet regime after World War II, they were very much with me. So I had almost like this veneration of food. And for some reason, I noticed when I started dating people that it was very important for me that they understand it. I guess in the book, I call it the beat test. It's actually chapter number two, which kind of tells you how important the food is to me. Um, like I had somebody from Italy, I took him to a cafe, Russian cafe, and there was like this salad of potatoes and mayonnaise and like peas and bologna, which is all we could get most of the time. Which we have in Turkey and it's called Russian salad. I love Rusalatese. it. Yeah, it's a huge thing in Turkey. They love it. Well, how do you say it again? Can you say the Rush? It's called uh, Rusalatese in Turkish. Rusalatese. I love that. Wow. Now yeah, and it comes with hamburgers. Whenever you get a hamburger, you and, get a burger, and, and you get the drink, Russian and, and salad. hopefully that drink and then you have a true yep. international experience. I have to <laughs> 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 Then <laughs> the whole world, you know, becomes your friend. Um, but yes, so the the Italian man was like, he took this pea out of the salad. He's like, this is a caper. We grow this in Sicily. And I'm like, this is not a caper. This is a pea. And it's a holy food because it's like one of the five foods I grew up with. And he's like, no, it's definitely a caper. I'm like, no, it's definitely a pea. And, and he didn't even like the salad. So that was like, didn't go out anymore. And then there was this Israeli person I was dating and he like was aghast by the fact that a lot of the food we had didn't really have a lot of seasoning and in the middle east a lot you know you season yeah. the food yeah you know zatar there's like other spices there's like a lot of like more browning going on with the pancakes and everything and yeah he's like what you just you know you eat this chicken and it's just boiled like that and i was like yeah it's boiled yeah i think it's nasty too but you didn't get to tell me that it's nasty it's my right culture. it's my nasty not yours <laughs> it's not your nasty i mean they're rather like commentary about the food and then the culture which weren't necessarily very felt made me feel very inclusive um and then yeah so basically there was kind of this it was very important for me of course other things are important too besides just food right and then when my husband and i went to this restaurant i was like i really hope he at least doesn't make fun of my food because i was so sick of people making fun of my culture whether it's food or something else um and i ordered this they took him to this uh, place called the russian vodka room i used to live in new york and then at that time i'd moved and we both went there for like a short trip um shortly after we started dating and i ordered this dish called tilotka patshube it literally means herring under a fur coat <laughs> i like, like that i love it's it. a great image too <laughs> yeah it's like this literally like this this like like pile it's like pink hot pink pile just a pile it looks like a pile like um it's smoothed over in this like semi-dome shape and inside there's a layer of pickled herring and there's a layer of onions and there's mayonnaise and then there's grated potatoes layer mayonnaise then there's yummy. carrots mayonnaise and you see where the okay. <laughs> there's like it sounds yummy yeah, it's so good <laughs> and then there's the the beets and that's also covered with mayonnaise so it's like this um sweet but also very tangy and salty and just like such a good comfort dish and we serve it for new year's eve and for just general like for big holidays and I ordered that dish and I was like, okay, if he makes fun of this, I just don't know what I'll do. Maybe he's going to just think it's ridiculous or maybe he's going to start making fun of the, the the herring. And But he ate it and, and I was watching him and I was terrified because I really liked this guy already. I was like, well, we can have conversations for hours. I just hope that he does not say my food tastes like, I don't know, badly. So, and he actually tried it and he's like, hmm, hmm. And I'm like, oh my God, say something. He's like, hmm, Yeah. 
This is a little bit like my mother's cooking. Oh, okay. That's a yes, good one. That's yeah, a good that's answer. a good one. And then I was like, waiter, waiter, come here. And then I ordered another dish and then I put it. Okay, honey, now you try this one. And he's yeah, that's good too. And I'm like, okay, one more, bring that over. And then the waiter brings another dish. I'm like, well, what about this? He's like, yeah, it's pretty good. And then at the end, as I described in the book, I asked the waiter to take a picture. Um, and then we use that to announce our engagement. So I love that. It's perfect. So yeah, it is perfect. Yeah. I I don't think that everyone is, um, I, I don't think all people are, are cut out to live with someone of a different background and a different culture and a different like language. I think it, you have to, you have to, you have to mesh. You have to find the culture that blends with yours. Like, you know, like the background that the person who has a similar culture to yours, if you're not both of, you know, like if you're both not Americans or something. I always joke that I actually just married my father if it's a Turkish version. Instead of a, a you know, a Midwestern Irish guy, I found a Turk who's exactly like my father. But I love that. I, I love that, actually. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. But it's 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 really interesting. It is um, interesting. And actually, one thing, I'm sorry to belabor this uh, no, no. herring under fur coat. I, <laughs> I hope it also spreads the love for the herring under fur coat. As an example, um, the city where the, the town where the book begins and where it's based um, is a, a place where I had a lot of, um, we had kind of like a Russian speaking community and there were women. So there was the people from Russia, from Belarus, from Ukraine. Um, and at one point we went out together and one of the partners, this American fiance said, oh yeah, herring under fur coat. I tried that once. It's so disgusting. It tasted like a fish swallowed another fish and then he described some other functions that i'm not going to talk about here and everybody just stared our jaws dropped nobody laughed nobody wanted to say anything we all first stared like oh my god did he just say that and then we all looked at, at the woman whose uh fiance that was and she's like it's okay honey you're drunk let's just go home it's best to be removed in that situation it is. oh my yeah. goodness but i remember i remember and i'm sure the others do too but anyway to, to get back to your yes it, i think it's um I mean, the interesting thing is, first of all, it's, it takes a certain openness, I think, to be married to somebody from a different culture, but also from a different, you know, religion. I think we could say the same about, you know, Catholic or Protestant or, you know, somebody from the East Coast versus, you know, the West Coast or the Midwest. My husband is from the Midwest. So, yeah. Actually, Where's your husband from? He's from Ohio. Oh, that's so funny. I grew up in Iowa. She grew up in Indiana, in Illinois. Oh, wow. but she lives in Indiana. We have covered yeah. the Midwest right now. <laughs> oh, I love that. Yeah, he's he's from um, the Toledo area, but he also has relatives over the border in Michigan. They get along despite the <laughs> Ohio-Michigan situation. Um, I have to say that explains exactly why the herring under the fur coat was familiar to oh, him, yeah. because that sounds like every Midwestern potluck dish that it I experienced does. as a kid. I'm so Every smorgasbord. I mean, yep, herring was important in my family too. You were not a part of the family if you didn't like herring. So pickled herring. <laughs> oh, I love that so much. Yeah. And the pickled beets. But I mean, I think the, oh, I love beets. The, the, I think the climate really also dictates it and the social mm-hmm. situation, like, you know, potatoes as being a prime, mm-hmm. you know, um, ingredient of the diet or mayonnaise and just driving yeah. in this brutal cold. I think it just really does yeah. something to a person. It makes us hearty. So do you cook a lot for your kids now? Do you, for your do your kids prefer to eat any of your food or no? Do they only like Americanized no, food? Because my kids whine sometimes. They'll be like, oh, Turkish food again. Like, yes, oh. shut up. You're eating it. That's right. <laughs> this is what we have today. There are no two dinners. Um, no, they actually do like it. Um, they grew up with it um, since they were very little, uh, to be honest. So we 
attended, like I gave them beets when they're little, I mean, after when it was safe, of course, and there was buckwheat, which is like a staple of, of the diet. And so they, they, they like the soups. I make a lot of soups. Uh, my grandmother's Ukrainian borscht, um, she's Ukrainian or was Ukrainian. So they, they love that. It's their favorite soup. So they, they eat a lot of that, of that kind of food. Of course, there's, you know, one of the cultural moments was when my husband started feeding them like peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and I I'm flipping out. I was like, this is, this is not a meal. This is a snack. You know, it's all sugar on sugar and it's pre-sliced bread. Like, how can you do this? But they, it's America. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so they like they like the snacks as well. And, and, and uh, the casseroles, the Midwestern casseroles, they're well, it's so funny because one of our big, I love that you, that the food is so important in the book. And I think it is such an important part to parenting um, as well, because, you know, like my husband is a horrendous cook, but because we lived in Turkey for quite some time when my oldest was little, I, my mother-in-law and I, that's how I learned so much Turkish. She would just jabber. We would go to the kitchen and she would jabber, jabber, jabber in Turkish. And you either catch it or you're getting your finger cut off. You either figure it out or, you know, she's going to, she's going to slice right through you. So I came back to the U S and I knew how to make all, every Turkish dish that was known to man. And that, and the, the one of the, when we'd watch television, I could always understand the cooking shows. So I would watch a lot of Turkish cooking shows when I was home with my baby son. And, um, and it was super hilarious because I'm like, I'm always cooking Turkish food, Tur- Turkish dishes or whatever. But, um, and it's really important because my kids do like, we, they learned how to, how to roll grape leaves. They learn how to do all of the, you know, how to make simit, how to make b- certain Turkish dishes, because, I learned how to make it and it connects to our culture. Then when we visit Turkey, their grandmother is like, mind is blown because they're like, oh, we'll help you roll the grape leaves. And she's like, oh, like she <laughs> thinks it's the best thing ever. So it kind of, I think it's such a huge connection to keep the kids connected to the culture, even if they're not there, you know, that it kind of brings that through as well. And so much of it, my kids have learned a lot of language, just a lot of Turkish through yeah, yeah. The ingredients and what we call it. And then, oh, well, it translates to green bean. Okay. That's now I know, you know, yes, I know that. So it makes sense. So. I love that so much. And that is truly the language of love, right? It's it's not just, yes. I mean, food is the easiest, like probably one of the easiest things to transmit from a culture, but it's also so incredibly important, especially if it's not like today we eat this dish, but you know, you're cooking with, you know, your mother-in-law in the kitchen in Turkey. And then they mm-hmm. grew up with all this food and the cooking shows and the rolling of the grape leaves. It's it's just, and the stories, I think the storytelling that accompanies all of it is yeah. critical. It just really nurtures this, this multicultural identity and yeah. I like it. I could talk about food all day. Obviously that's my jam. <laughs> Heather, what kind of, well, you, you go next question. What question do you have for us? Um, You know, one of the things that really stood out for me, too, is when you were talking about, um, obviously, there's a lot of discussion about how to teach kids your language and and all of that. And then also, like, what preschools they should go to or if they go to preschool. And I'm a preschool teacher, so a lot of that really stood out to me. And uh, there's one uh, point in the book where you were talking about um, how some of the more traditional schools from different cultures were very strict with little ones and then versus sometimes the American schools were a little bit more fun and open. And then in other cultures, it was the opposite experience where some of the American schools were a little bit more strict. So I find that so fascinating. I teach at a free play school where it is all child led. And so it does just look like they're doing nothing but playing. (laughs) And um, because of that, and as a teacher, we talk about this all the time at, at that kind of a school, it's more about setting up the environment and interjecting yourself only when you need to, to help kids like 
uh, talk to one another or appropriate behavior or making sure no one's going to get hurt and things like that. But yet we don't necessarily sit down and do worksheets and things. And I have had experiences with some um, like immigrant parents getting a little bit stressed out about that and wanting me to be teaching the alphabet and all the, you know, being a little bit more uh, hands-on sit down worksheet kind of school. So it's really interesting to me. I found that whole section very fascinating, but I don't know if you just want to comment on on preschools and that kind of situation from your book. Sure. And that is, that is so interesting what you're describing. And I mean, even like free play or play, play-based play environment, I mean, it takes so much work and coordination, especially for such little kids. So thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you for all your work. Um, and it's not something that's easy to see to, to, other, to other people necessarily. But yes. It takes a special kind of patience. Uh, one I do not have. <laughs> It is, it is very hard. And even now, you know, I, I observe, you know, people getting feedback, even there's always criticism of some sort toward teachers and school uh, and preschool or school or daycare. Um, but yes, something that I've definitely observed in general, not, of course, not true for everybody is that a lot of, I think in a lot of traditional cultures, people grew up in very strict environments, um, you know, there is uh, the emphasis on, you know, obedience structure. And sometimes when there is this child led, you know, format, when they're not, look, now we sit down and you don't make a peep. And if you make a peep, you stand in the corner or you get punished, which is something that would happen to me if I didn't sleep during nap time in my kindergarten in the Soviet Union, I'd be put in the corner in front of everybody to stand there and often in front of an open window in the wintertime. Um, or being force fed. That's something that also happened to me. Not at, not at all times. And that's obviously not part of that usual protocol, but it's, it's very common. There's, you know, if you don't eat everything, there's scarcity, then you're not going to be able to get, uh, you know, out of, you know, you can't leave your seat. You have to finish it all. Um, or you'll be punished or like you'll be made fun of by the society and community and shame. It's, it's, it's pretty terrible. And it's not something I do at all with my own children, but I, in a lot of cultures that kind of a strict approach is very much espoused. It's part of the ethos. And in addition to that, I think there's also the issue of um, education being the immigrants currency. Um, a lot of times when people come to the United States, I mean, some of them might be, you know, they might have some means, but a lot of times, and traditionally, you know, we're poor, we don't have a lot of money. We're, reinventing ourselves. And even if we do have, you know, our parents are lucky to land a job right away, which wasn't the case for me at all. We had to start from scratch and we were poor when we came. Um, there's this anxiety that how do I survive? You know, how do I pay for rent? How do I keep my job? How do I give my kids the best future possible? And education is really where it's at. So there is this anxiety over this, the child learning as much as possible and absorbing and not just being average, but like does not even get a plus, yeah, which is considered an F in some cases for some parents. So there is that kind of pressure that happens. Uh, it's a huge thing for us. And, and you know, I mean, obviously I, I, it's big because I'm a teacher, but my husband's like, no, you will go to college. You will go to graduate school. You, you keep going because that's exactly what you said. That's how you survive. That's success. If I gave up everything to get here, and it's funny, my husband finished his master's degree at like 46, finally. It took him like 10 years and a baby in the middle of all of it to get it done, but he got it, you know, and I said, I will make sure. And he took our oldest son. I mean, I was sobbing. He took our 
our oldest son around the campus where, because he graduated from Villanova. And he said, when I came to America, I delivered pizza to that building and that building and that building. And I drove everywhere and all these, you know, I had to listen. I was an engineer and I had to listen to these kids and have them treat me terribly because I was the pizza guy. And he's like, look at now, now I'm, now I've graduated from the same place. And it's a huge thing. Like there's nothing more important than education. It's so, yeah, that, that it's amazing. And congratulations to your husband. I've also been thinking about like, you've been writing something about this. Um, there is this notion of, you know, the, there's the education part and then there's also the socializing part and the cultural part. Right. And a lot of times as first generation immigrants, we just like, we have our, you know, like nose to the grindstone. I think I even said that in the book, we, we can't focus on anything else. We just have to survive. And we might not even notice all those dynamics. Oftentimes college students live at home because that's what families mm-hmm. do. We live at home. There's a grandma there sometimes eating, make, making us this national dishes. There's sometimes even the great grandma there as well. And this is also how we save money because, um, you know, we often don't have money. And also this is how um, we bond with our family members sometimes there's also child taking uh, caretaking responsibilities on the kids so the the social aspect is not even part of it and even oftentimes it's it's very difficult um to have a typical college experience for the immigrants for that reason especially for commuting ones yeah i i know it definitely helped me to to see it from the other perspective just um reading about that and also like i'm at a co-op school also which the parents are very involved in so the teacher's job is not only teaching the kids but also working with the parents and helping them to understand what we are doing and how it works and and that it does work you know and so i just felt like that really not that i didn't understand where the parents were coming from before, but I think it just really helped solidify, you know, that, yeah, it's a totally different experience and their, their goals are, I mean, they're similar goals, but their goals are maybe heightened because of being an immigrant. And uh, I totally understand that and get that. It's just, it's just tougher, tougher going. And um, our, our focus is very much on the social emotional development. And so it isn't so much on, on uh, learning ABCs, but it's all there. They get it all. It's all, you know, it's all built in really um, to our curriculum. So it's pretty, it's kind of fun though, to be able to figure out how to express that and, and, and get the understanding across that it all works. Yeah. So. Yeah. And, and I love that. And there's also, I should mention that um, a lot of times this level of focus on education, it can be, I mean, a lot of parents take it to, to a different level and that that's what works for them. That's fine. Right. But it, there's mm-hmm. a lot of extracurricular activities involved or you must write in like two languages you know like Mm -hmm. read and write by the time you're like six or sometimes people start even sooner or I see questions and along you know I live in a pilot like in a very immigrant um saturated area and there are questions on these discussion boards well where can I find coding classes for my first grader I was like, I don't know. I mean, I just get him some blocks. Really, just, it's going to yeah, be the same yeah, thing. Like, let him, let him build something. Here's especially because for kids, like, oftentimes you get them like this nicest present, and all they want is the darn gift bag to play with, right? Right. Like, yeah, right. <laughs> they just want to climb in and out. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, even just to go back to the the, the social aspect, it's. I remember when I moved here, we were all delivering newspapers with our family, and. Sometimes I, I would see my classmates or my schoolmates like looking out at me through the window. And I was so embarrassed, especially as a teenager. I mean, you're already awkward. And, and like, this is just like, I don't know, top of it, especially if your clothes are different or like you're dressing like people used to dress in the old country or like somebody donated clothes to you. 
So that definitely made it made it harder for me to socialize in the beginning, aside from the fact that I my English was just very bad. Um, but yeah, yeah, I was that newspaper <laughs> newspaper girl, not not necessarily the peers. So that uh, took me a little while to get over that, and you know, eventually we stopped delivering newspapers. But um, yeah, that kind of stays with you for a bit. You had the unfortunate experience of being in California when Pete Wilson was the governor, sadly. Yeah, he was the governor. And that also feeds into, by the way, that there's nothing wrong with delivering newspapers. I think it's a fact that oh, of a super old car <laughs> and my <laughs> parents were there as well. And they were speaking Russian very loudly, trying to figure out like, do you, this is not number. No, where is the number they wrote? And it's like, they were arguing <laughs> like really frustrated and my little brother would like put the bags in the, in the bag, but put the newspapers in the bag and I'd be the one like walking around and all of us would like try to figure it out. So you had this whole band of immigrants trying to put a newspaper in the right. (laughs) And it probably looked really ridiculous from the, from the side. I like how you slipped into your parents' accent immediately because my kids do that when they tell stories about their father already, Uh especially my nine-year-old. He tells father said, father said, what is this? I do not understand. (laughs) He always flips right into my husband's accent. I love that you just did that. It's hilarious. I I wish I could come up. That's how they sound in your head. (laughs) That's that's right. Yeah. I want to come over for dinner to your house and eat all that food. From your mother-in-law, and, and we can exchange some accents. Yeah, I don't know. Right. <laughs> I might just embarrass myself, but that's okay. I'm used to it. Perfect. It's perfect. But um, perfect, perfect. but yeah. So Pete. So when I moved, um, that was when um, Pete Wilson became governor, and he there, there was also a recession in California, and uh, I mean for many reasons, but one of things on Pete Wilson's platform was. Um, immigration, and he specifically targeted um, undocumented immigrants as as being the culprit of, you know, the the economic and social ills in the state. So he started campaigning kind of very very strongly against undocumented immigration. And I didn't know what undocumented undocumented was. We came as refugees, but I mean, I know undocumented. I, I you know I knew a lot of people who were undocumented as kids and adults. I mean, it, it happens. Um, and I remember just seeing these images on TV all the time, played over and over this like image that they keep coming. And then you have this like swarm of people like crossing, you know, a road and running and, and, and they're portrayed in these mo- most demonic ways and described in just such a way too. And there was, um, a sign in my high school when I was a freshman above the blackboard, it said, welcome to California and I'll go home. I never really understood what that meant. But then it took me a little while and I was like, oh, that's really weird because we did have a lot of immigrants in our school. There were immigrants from Southeast Asia, from a lot of immigrants from Mexico, particularly, especially because it's just California. And I saw, I mean, I I definitely saw how that, I mean, I I don't know how things were before, but it affected me and it affected socialization processes. I remember I used to, when I first started um, going to school, I was in middle school and I hung out. there were a couple of Russian speakers, but I tended to hang out in my class with this group of Mexican kids. Um, and they were so friendly and they always stuck together and we didn't, they spoke English. I spoke English poorly. And then I noticed that the other American kids didn't really talk to us at all. I don't know if it was language or something else. Um, but then there was this French student who came from abroad, this girl, and everybody was like all over her, all the American students, especially the boys, um, and she wasn't particularly nice. I think I remember actually the opposite because she never talked to me either. And that that always surprised me. Because I never really understood that dynamic until later. But basically, yeah. I was like, this is a language of Cervantes. This is like Mexico. It's like so much history, mm-hmm. you know, and, and it never made sense to me why 
there was this this ethos, right? Anti-immigrant and assuming everybody's um, undocumented, which is not the case and doesn't even matter. Doesn't even matter when you're in school and these are your peers learning with you. But one thing I, I actually, Prop 187 is what I meant, but wanted to say is what ended up passing. Pete Wilson passed Prop 187, which denied public education and medical care for all undocumented immigrants, which was horrible. So sick. Yeah. And attendance, like at schools dropped right after this passed because a lot of um, parents were frightened. I talked to somebody recently who came here, uh, who overstayed his visa with his family. And he said his mom used to, like, somebody would knock on the door and his mom used to tell the kids to, like, hide under beds. I think it was a police officer who came for something. He was looking for something in the neighborhood. It, and I mean, this the trauma that it um, imparts. It was it was always it, it was found to be unconstitutional, but the damage is there, and the rhetoric stays right. It, it, and the rhetoric's still going strong. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Well, and the fear is just there, no matter what, because if it can be there once, it can be there again, right? I mean, it's just terrible terrible yeah. experience. We've read a lot of, uh, we, so we've focused mostly on middle grade books on the podcast and we've read a lot of, um, immigrant experience books for middle graders and they're all just so amazing at sharing. And, and I think one even was set during Pete Wilson's administration. And it was really fascinating to see it from the, from the immigrant experience. I think it was Chinese, uh, Chinese American family and the girl had friends who were, um, from Mexico and, it was just a really interesting read. What do you think about books as far as helping people understand these kind of experiences and immigrant experiences it's beyond even, I mean, for kids, especially, but like at any level? I am all for it. Absolutely. Um, I mean, books, I mean, books is how we relearn, you know, about not just about our heritage and values and important lessons, but also just about the diversity of, of human experiences, including in the United States, uh, representation in book in books matters for everybody. I remember just, you know, when I like when Jhumpa Lahiri was huge because she was considered to be one of these mainstream immigrant writers, even though she's she was born in London, I think. But she she um, centered the immigrant experience, especially for um, the Indian diaspora population. And then there was Lara Vapnyar who wrote about the you know, the Russian speaking immigrant experience. So that was just starting to become mainstream. And that was what, like 20, 20 years ago or so. So it's fairly new that we're seeing this influx of immigrant writing, nonfiction and fiction. And I'm incredibly grateful. And just, just looking at my kids, even I, I read them a lot of books from the former Soviet union. I even bought some on Etsy, um, like the old editions that I grew up with because we couldn't bring them. We left, so, like, we could only have like two suitcases when we immigrated per, per person. So we left so much behind and I tried to buy some of these similar books with old editions that I grew up with and they're wow. beautiful and the kids love it. But even now when we read something to them um, about like the Eastern immigrant, Eastern European immigrant experience um, or I don't know, in, in, a child from India or a child from China or like the somebody who's growing up Jewish and celebrating a Jewish holiday, they either say, oh, I, I can see the joy in their eyes. I see their eyes light up and they say, oh, it's just like me or, oh, it's just something that we heard or this is just like my friend. So it, even if it's not just about them and makes them feel validated by having these books around and uh, empowered, it also teaches them that the world is huge and then there are other people that are different and they need to have a voice and they're they're not they're not aliens. <laughs> they're people just like us. 
Which I think is huge because I think they feel like aliens sometimes. Like, do, like my kids, even oftentimes, I noticed the biggest thing for them was that they don't call him my. They're they don't call him dad. They call him Baba, and they've always called him Baba since day one. But it always like throws them at school when they're like, well, "What do I say? Do I call him dad because everybody else has a dad, but I have a Baba?" Like, and, and even like the littlest things, it kind of makes them feel like, "Well, I'm kind of weird," you know. Yeah. <laughs> they don't have a lot of family here. They, you know, they. They get to go to Turkey on vacation, but it really is just a trip to grandma's. So I think it does make kids feel a little bit like, am I the only one like this? So seeing that in a book and reflective of something that's a reflection of what their life is like is is fantastic. Absolutely. And then I noticed that they also want to bring those books and share them with their class. Yeah. Especially for, you know, those sharing days or tell me about your heritage. It makes them really excited. Um, and that excitement just translates. And especially just if I can throw in there, kids are so incredibly smart. <laughs> Obviously, you know, and they they understand these social dynamics, even if we think that they don't. And that really impacts culture and especially language transmission. So even like kids in preschool, like they, they observe maybe they're the only speakers of that language um, and maybe nobody else speaks it and they don't want to stand out. So they'll try to maybe resist it sometimes. And that's true for teenagers as well. So especially if they get these negative messages from the culture, from social media, from TV, from the news, um, that it's it's strange or unusual to be an immigrant or your type of immigration is wrong. Or if they see their parents in these really embarrassing situations or being mistreated because of where they're from, it, it really sticks with them and makes them not want to speak the language because they think it's not a language with status like English. Maybe they think it's a language that's associated with poverty or with negative imagery in the news. Um, whereas, in fact, it has, you know, generational wisdom and connection to their relatives and to their a part of their culture. And it's so incredibly important to transmit that language. But unfortunately, it, it's that it can start very early that they get these messages that impacts their bilingualism. Yeah, we definitely had that. Although once we kind of, when they figured out you could use it as a hidden language, sort of like a secret language, they were more game to work on it. I noticed that like, I I would, and I loved it when we first came back to the US, I could say like to my child on the playground, like in Turkish, hey, watch out for that. Don't go to that kitty's runny nose or something. And you could yell it at him in Turkish and he was the only one who got it. Or you could also yell at them so that they knew that they were in trouble because the only woman yelling Turkish at them was their mother. I love it. So there is some power in that bilingualism. (laughs) Yeah. If you have, you know, it depends on what language it is, but there is power and you can use it for good and evil. Definitely. One of my, one of the talks I did, um, Recently, over the summer, there was a family where um, the dad was um, American and the mom was born in the former Soviet Union, and she tried to teach him Russian. And the kid was like learning. He wasn't bored. I think the dad spoke Russian, too. But now that he's away in college, he's like all about the Russian because apparently he talks about his roommate in, in, in Russian to the mom. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think it's polite necessarily like talking about somebody um, but but at least he feels like he can share more openly when he's secret language see it's got good and evil right one of the things I loved in the book too was when you talked about the 40-day recovery period after having a baby I was so jealous because I'm like there is so much pressure in the United States to be up and back on it 
And like my mom, it came and stayed with us, which was fantastic, but she stayed for like a week and she made me like go shopping before she left because she wanted to make sure I could be up and out. When I was reading about the grandmothers and the mothers coming and spending 40 days with you and you can't do anything, I was just like, that sounds like heaven. <laughs> yeah. Could you imagine? I can't even imagine can't even how imagine. nice that would be. I, th- I can see the pluses and minuses. Obviously, I was like, I was like that too. Um, like we had, you know, my mom's help actually stayed at, at their house um, for a few days after the birth actually, for, for my daughter. And yeah, I, after my son was born, I was like, I got to do it. I mean, I have like work emails already. I'm just going to go take a walk. So on day three, as you said, no, the next day after I got back from the hospital, I decided to just take a casual walk around the neighborhood because Everywhere I was reading, it's like, you got to be, you know, exercising. You got to just get yourself in shape. You got to go back to work. And yeah, I felt so bad afterwards. I was like, yeah, I should not be doing that. But yeah, it's it's um, a lot of cultures. And it's actually standard in a lot of cultures to have a 40-day period when you just stay with the baby and just worry about recovering, worry about feeding the baby, assuming the mother is uh, breastfeeding because some mothers don't, don't do that. And then there's bottle feeding and then nothing is wrong with that. Of course there. And then the female relatives are there to take care of all of your other needs. They make the food, they, you know, clean up, they, you know, wash the dishes just to ensure that the mother has this calm after a very difficult process, right. Of giving birth. Um, they don't call it labor for nothing. And um, they're bonding with the baby. Um, which is which is nice. I mean, I can see how it would get a little contentious if like your mother-in-law is always there telling you eat, eat, or like, like, what are you doing? Or giving you advice that you might not want to hear, <laughs> especially if two of them are there at the same time. Um, but but overall it's 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 a very bonding experience that I I wish I had that time uh, myself. But there's always this guilt, right? In America, we have this guilt, like, oh, what am I doing? Um, of course, I don't know anybody who sleeps when the baby sleeps. I don't know. I've, oh, which is the worst advice ever. No one's going to do that. Right. No one does that. <laughs> right. Exactly. We're like burp when a baby burps. I don't, I don't know what else. Right? Uh, uh, yeah. No, I don't know people who do that. I think there's always this pressure to just be great, to be happy, to recover physically and mentally and just like be, you know, up, up and at it. And it's just not how things work, unfortunately. Yeah. That's not a thing in Turkey. In fact, you get um, 23 hours if you have a C-section, less if you don't. I had an emergency C-section. They don't, you don't get a nurse. You don't get anything. You bring your mother-in-law or your mother. In my case, it was my mother-in-law to the hospital. And then they literally hand you that baby and you walk. I remember walking. I just had a C-section 23 hours before carrying that baby down the concrete stairs. And I'm thinking, oh God, don't drop him. Don't pass out. Don't drop him. Don't pass out all the way home. And then walking him all night. And I, and they give you, you know, here's a couple of Tylenols. Good luck. Call us if there's an infection. And you're like, okay, well, this is exciting. And I walked that baby all night. And when I had my second son in the US, I was like, they were like, well, you have to stay for four days. And I'm like, nah, I can do this in 23 hours. I'm good. I got it. It's just nothing. I felt like it was at the Ritz Carlton in America. I thought it was, it was, it was heaven. It was, I was like this, if this, if I had known this, I would have had like seven more children. Please, this is easy. This is nothing. No wonder people have so many kids in America. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was, I remember my sister-in-law telling me in the hospital in Turkey, she's like, they're going to walk you soon. You will pass out. Don't worry. And I was like, this cannot be healthy. This cannot be good for anybody. But at the same time, there's this, I mean, that's, I, I wish there was more time, of course, to recover. But at the same time, it's like, you will pass out. 
but at the same time, there's this, but I got you, right? There's this, right, right. You. you will keep going. Yeah. 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 It's that very Eastern European yeah. sort of like push through, push through, push through, you know, yeah. you're tough. And, yeah. And then at the same, the community aspect is, is critical. I mean, I don't know if we have time to talk about the, the isolation of a lot of uh, parents. I think especially like, I don't know if it's, a, I think where I live, it's a families tend to be smaller and, and, and the baby. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of times they just move away from the family and, yeah, definitely. Because it's, it's an expensive area. It's like Boston. It's just people, you know, it's it's a very, you're limited by the cost of living. Yeah, yeah. But the community involvement and the relatives being away, it's, it certainly makes it a lot harder to recover. Mm-hmm. Um, even if the system is not necessarily there uh, to support the new mom, like the, you know, I'm not talking about, I mean, yes, leave, you know, the postnatal care, mental health, um, the, the, the aspect, the community aspect is oftentimes missing, which makes it a lot harder. Mm-hmm. That is very true. But it is very true because in Turkey, we lived in an apartment complex. At, uh, and, you know, I if you had a pro, I remember one time my son was sick and we were nervous about something. We we're brand new parents. We did, What do we know? We're stupid. And, um, you know, like there was a nurse that lived upstairs. She came right down and put us all, you know, she taught us how to put him to sleep because he only wanted to do, you know, he only wanted to nurse. She taught us what to do. And then there was an old lady who would come down every day and she would say, I'm just going to sit here and you go shower. And I, it was, I, I mean, as an American, it was very hard for me to accept help, but it was looking back on it now. I'm like, God, that was a lifesaver. And what did it cost her? Nothing. She was just like, she's like, I'll just watch your TV instead of my TV and hold the baby. And it was that sense of community with these sort of people that you didn't have any real connection to, but you shared a living space with, you know, shared living uh, hallway, basically. But they really took care of, of each other. And I, that that was a community. And we just don't have that in the U.S. And I think it would be really hard to be used to that. It was hard for me not being used to that to get used to it. I think it would be really hard coming from a country that had that and was used to that and then being so isolated and so sort of independent and individualized as we are in the U.S. I, lo- I love that story, by the way. And I, I couldn't agree with you more. And I love how you had the, you know, the neighbor help, especially as a new parent, like when you're like, what am I doing? Is, is it OK to leave the baby? Um, and yeah, I remember when I was growing up, we had well, my grandparents lived across town, both sets of grandparents. So they would regularly still come and help. But we had neighbors that would watch us. Yeah. You know, one neighbor, like I, I grew up on the ninth floor in this in apartment building. And on the 10th floor, there was a woman who cut our hair. I think, I don't know, she like she probably took money. It wasn't like free, but she, she watched us sometimes. We had a neighbor on the eighth floor who watched us. Um, we had a neighbor next door who was a former nurse. So I think also gave us like some sometimes some advice if some one of us was sick so it was uh yeah and others in the building as well so it was a lot more cohesive and a little bit easier I wish we had that but I also must say I don't like my neighbors enough for any of that so maybe that's (laughs) (laughs) that happens I do. I have good neighbors. So I have to. You do. I have to say you do. I have fantastic neighbors that helped a lot. Yeah. That's wonderful. Um, Two more questions. Can I ask my two questions real quick? One of them is I loved the section about um, like you were talking about like things you bring from the old country. And you mentioned like washing the baby and vodka things. You were like, you know what? I'm going to draw the line. Maybe this isn't the best thing to bring from the old country. What is one thing that you brought from the old country or came from your cultural, you know, like the old, the the culture of your family that you found was really helpful in the U.S. that maybe people in the U.S. wouldn't have done? Oh, just one. This is so hard. And by the way, when I started writing the book, I didn't even know what that was. It just came to me so naturally. So like it wasn't like like it, it was just it was just subconscious. I think what 
I think the the food to me is very important. I hate to belabor the point. Maybe I'll add one more. But the ability to like, I mean, it's often hard to find time, obviously, to make home, homemade meals. We have so many responsibilities, all of us. Um, but I think the ability, like the soups, I think the soup is a big deal. It, it's really huge where I grew up and it also makes it easier for them to eat their vegetables. Did you feed them soup? Was that their first food? Among them. I think the first food was like, like applesauce or like, or like avocado or like. Because that's the thing in Turkey too. You, the first tarhana, chorbasi, tan, uh, like, I don't even know what it translates to. It's just like, it's a kind of soup with noodles in it. That's the first thing you feed them. Oh, I love that. Yeah. I need, it's I it's to... not the, I don't know who thought giving a baby soup was a good idea. Cause it was, it was enough to kill me. I'm like, could you just stop? It was everywhere. <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> like soup's everywhere. And then I'm sure like, I'm sure your Turkish relatives are like, what baby led weaning? Like, are you, no, that's the norm. That was the norm. You just feed them what you eat. They eat what you eat. And, and like, you know, like baby wearing on all this stuff. I mean, my kid, my oldest is almost 15. So it's been a long time, but I would tie him on because it wasn't safe to push the stroller in the city. Somebody's going to run over him. And we didn't even have a real stroller. I'd tie him on. We, he ate what we ate. He was raised like a typical Turkish kid. And we came to the U.S. And, they, and we didn't have a car seat either. You know, they don't have those in Turkey. And we came to the U.S. And there was like, everybody's talking about baby baby wearing and baby led weaning. And I'm like, wait, what? Or co-sleeping too. And I'm like, he didn't have a bed. We, were, we couldn't afford a bed for him. He slept between us. Right. So all these things that everybody thought were trendy were just how the Turks raise their kids anyway. So right. There's right. no Gerber. There's no like, <laughs> there's no Gerber. There's no baby kangaroo pouch or whatever. You just tie him on, you know, and off you go. What method do you follow? Yeah. That was a huge shock to me when I, when I started, um, when I became a mom, because I didn't grow up with anything. Like I didn't have baby, I think there were like little baby foods, like little jars. And, um, but I don't think I had that, like, I don't remember any like baby devices or. No, we didn't have any of those. Yeah. So it was, it was, it was really strange for me to try to, I mean, it was overwhelming a little bit to try to learn them. And I mean, some of them were great, but a lot of times it was a sense of overwhelm. It's like, is it really necessary? And I think in a lot of cultures, it's, it's just comes with the territory. I think. There is not as much. I don't know if it has to do with with wealth or. or I think it's disposable income. Maybe, yeah. yeah, but it's also like it's just you know it's just a fact of life that some families have kids and then they just kind of integrate them into the family and it's not yeah. seen as this, you know like something out of the ordinary. Um, and so they eat what the what the adults eat. I mean, probably not steak, <laughs> obviously, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then they just kind of, you know, relatives take care of them um, it, when when the, the help is needed or somebody can watch them. Um, and it's it, it maybe in a little bit, it's, it's it's a little bit more cohesive. And so soup for me was a big deal, like for some reason, because it's very comforting and it's also recipes from my family and it gets them the vegetables and the broth and it teaches them to eat as well. And they really enjoyed it. Um, and they still do love soups. It's part of like most of our meals for dinner. Um, what is, so that's probably one thing I also... I don't know if it's a good thing, but I'm always worried that they're cold. Like yeah. freak out. I remember when I That's my husband too. Oh, he always is yeah. like, Are you sure they're gonna be warm enough? Yeah. So I tend to overdress them a lot for like for, for, for different inclement weather situations. When my I remember when my daughter was born, um, I was I took her outside because we have to take in my culture, people the baby has to be outside even in the wintertime and sleep, nap outside because they get fresh air and they get kind of like weathered I don't I don't know how to how to use that word properly but kind of um acclimated to the seasons and it's supposed to be here in the northern countries it's common and I remember I took her outside but of course she was bundled up and then I came back in and I had this conniption I'm 
I called my mother. I was like, oh my God, mom. Like she was without a hat. And mind you, this is California. And this is like early October when it's like, it's a heat wave. This is our summer happens in September and October. And she's like, I'm sure she's fine. I'm like, but no, she was not wearing a hat. She's going to get sick. So I was like freaking out for the next two days, always like touching her forehead, making sure she's fine. And and slippers in the house also is another big. Thing. I was going to say that slippers in the house is a must. Yes, yeah. Yes. Always have to have slippers in the house. Do not wear your shoes in the house. Always no. wear the slippers by the back door. Yes. Yes. They slippers might not the fit you, but you must wear them. Yes. You must wear them. And you, if you don't have them, <laughs> you will come in and somebody else will give them to you in that house. And you kind of have no choice but to put them on. Yeah. And my kids are very adamant. Their friends will walk in the door still and they will be like, you got to take your shoes off. You got to take your shoes off and put slippers on. And yes, they're, they're very, they're very Turkish. My kids are very Turkish that way. Excellent. All right, Heather, did you have any other questions? I mean, I could sit here and gab all day, but I'm having so much fun. I was just thinking I grew up on a farm and we had to take our shoes off too, but oh, I love that. I don't, I don't know if it was cultural. Like, you know, it's so interesting too, because I'm like fifth generation now. I'm always curious, like what things really were based on some of our culture stuff that's still there, but that we just do, but we don't know why we do it or whatever. I, you know, I don't know. I just think it's really fascinating to think about. I mean, definitely pickled herring because I come from Scandinavian culture. So any kind of fish thing, that's definitely a remnant of, of all of that. Yes. Yes. Anyway, I just think it's interesting because it doesn't totally go away ever. Does it? I mean, I heard all the stories from my grandparents and. I just think even though it might get less and less, especially with like the language, it's still there. It's still underneath everything in your family. And I just love that so much. I think as an immigrant parent, do you have a lot more influence on your kids than you think? And and again, like we're kind of a weird mix because we've both been immigrants in each other's countries. So we both, you know, my husband and I, but I think it's, it's always interesting to see how how much of a Turk they are turning into. <laughs> I say, I find them to be, and I, you know, and I only have boys. And so therefore it, I guess it's more evident, easier to see in my boys that they're that much like their father. But um, <laughs> yeah, they are, they are all uh, sports nuts. They're all soccer nuts. They're all, they all three play the same position wow. as, and they all play the same position as their grandfather who was a professional soccer player in Turkey. So I said, it's very, it's really interesting. It's super fun to trace wow. it. And it's, I feel very fortunate to have uh, the kind of thing there. It's well, nothing has been easy and it's, it's more it's, interesting, right? It's way more. Yeah. <laughs> There's never a dull moment at our. It house. is so interesting. And my, my daughter just had a presentation about her family. They're talking about immigration and she talked obviously about the, you know, the Russian speaking and the Jewish side of the family, but she also came in and we were, she was learning more about, well, we also, we talk about the, her family on the other side of the, of the family as well, but she talked about, you know, the farmers in the Midwest that from my husband's side of the family, and they worked with the unions. And she was also just really proud to bring that, um, you know, to, and also talk about, you know, the roots, I think, go back to Poland and, and Great Britain and, and Ireland. So she talked about that, too. And it's also just it's just it's, it's just fun to see how excited they are to just uh, retrace their roots, whatever that may be, and just be proud of them. I think that's one of the most magical things about living in the United States. I know we have a lot of our ugliness too, but if you're in the U S you really have access to the world because there's somebody that has, you know, if you just are open to other people's cultures and understanding, and I mean, the food, the cultures, everything that you can learn from your fellow Americans is just, I think that's magical. Yeah. It's a lot. It's a lot. 
Well, thank you so much for coming. I have been, like I said, I have shared it. I can't even tell you how many people I've sent it to. I have a good friend in uh, Philadelphia who's married. She's Jewish and her husband was Russian. And I said, you need to read this. I sent it to my all my friends that, you know, like my friends in education. I'm like, if you work with bicultural families, or immigrant families, you need to read this. So I think it's a great book. Even if you are not an immigrant and you're not as attached to it as I was, um, I think, you know, Heather can say it's just a great oh, read. I learned so much from reading. And it was fascinating. It's super fun. It's super entertaining and it's super educational. Oh, so. I definitely think teachers, it's a great one for teachers. Definitely. Just yeah, to definitely. understand. Thank more, you. Um, sure. that, that that just means so much. Um, I, I really appreciate that. And it, it's yeah, it, <laughs> I'm like feeling overwhelmed. Yeah. I'm so happy to hear it. And that I hope it's a resource. And when you guys come to Boston to visit, make sure you look me up and we'll go out for Turkish food. Oh, that's, that's <laughs> fun. I'll have to bring that salad as well. And, and uh, Oh, my husband loves Rusalat to say. He would love Russian salad. Right. And sometimes we drive through Indiana to get to Chicago uh, because we have um, relatives there as well. So we'll, we'll be sure Perfect. to get something get something going on over the corner. Oh, that would be yeah, so fun. Yeah, so your your fun. husband and I can commiserate. <laughs> and you and Gokhan, my, you and my husband can commiserate. Here's what it's like, right? <laughs> Yeah, right. Here's the other side of the coin. Right. Um, it was such a pleasure to meet you. Very and nice um, you. you can come back on as a special guest star anytime. I Let us know. That. Margie, Heather, thank you so much for your time and for your kind words. I, I wish we could do this longer, but maybe another time. Sounds great. Yes. Bye-bye. Thank right. you. Bye. Bye. That wraps up our last book chat of 2022. We don't have a pick six for you, but I would like to ask Margie really quick what three countries she'd consider living in as an expat. Uh, first of all, we didn't give you a pick six because those would be considered stocking stuffers and it's too early for that. So we gave you your big gift a little bit early so you could there enjoy you it. That's what I always say to my kids. Like, but yeah. your big gift you got early uh, <laughs> and that was Masha. So there you go. Um, so what three countries would I consider living as an expat? Having been an expat, I have to say it does make you more willing to do it again. There's always been because of my husband's job and he does work. He has for the last, oh my gosh, 12 years, 10, 12 years, he's worked for a, a company based out of France. So that often gets floated um, about him going to France for a while. They do they, they do that often, sort of transfer between America and France. And I've always been up for going. He has never wanted to go. I, it's not because I wanted to go to France. I just like to live anywhere. You know me. Mm -hmm. I like the adventure. I would go back to Turkey. I would expat in Turkey again. But the nice thing about being an expat in Turkey now is I already speak the language. So that yeah. takes out the pain. And the other thing that I, about it is I would not have to worry about bearing children there. So that's True. already been You're done, past that. You're past right? That. So that's already been done over that. Don't have to worry about that anymore. So that would put Turkey back in and the family's there. So it probably wouldn't really count again because it's too easy, but I will take it. I would also say I would go back to Ireland. I love Ireland. I love it very much. What's your family heritage, right? Yeah, that's that's where the family's from. So again, I'm kind of like cheating by going back to someplace that is familiar. So my third pick, I want to I want to go to Andorra. I've decided to become an expat in Andorra because it's so teeny tiny. It would be like Rhode Island. I love it. I think it would be fun. I would know everything about it. I would get along well. I can't imagine there's a lot of expats there. I would be one of a kind. It would be a big fish in a small pond. There you go. So that's where I would go. Yes, Andorra. I love it. Okay. So I think mine are, I'm going to go with you for the first one, similar to Ireland. I say Sweden, because that's my family heritage. I'm yes. somewhat familiar well, with Well, and you would look like everybody there. 
the truth. I cannot speak the language though, but I do know a little bit about the culture, at least definitely the Swedish American spirit experience I'm familiar with. And then I would have to say France for my second one, mostly because I did go there as an exchange student when I was in high school. And I just, I love France. Um, we went there. You really actually, like the pastries, be honest. Yes, I do. The pastries, really about the, pastries. Are, the food is amazing. I also went there for a part of my master's program. I took a class there and my, my guys went with me and we just had a really great experience. And so, and also my son is learning French. So I just think that would be a fun place to go. Uh, to be an expat. And I know the French hate Americans. I just think it would be fun though, to try to win them over. I don't know why I like a challenge <laughs> Talk to my husband about the French. And then you'll be like, maybe I will go. <laughs> <laughs> and then my last one is uh, Peru. I, I love the Spanish language, but also just there's something about Peru. The, the archeological history there yeah. is, is so fascinating to me. My grandparents actually went to Machu Picchu when I was a kid. And I just have always had a fascination with Peru. We've had foreign exchange students who were from there. We used to take groups of kids there from one of my old schools. I never went because I always, I, they were high school kids and I was in the middle school, but yeah, they always used to have a great time in Peru. I've always wanted to spend Christmas at Machu Picchu. I think that would be so cool. But anyway, uh, I would like to, you know, actually I would like to amend mine and say, instead of Turkey, I'm going to go to England because I really love a good British mystery. And I feel like I could be like the expat who comes and solves the mysteries in the village, sort of a la Agatha Ray but she's American this time. You know, England is obviously at the top of my list, but I thought I'd leave it off because I feel you like it doesn't count. Language. Yeah, I feel like it doesn't count. I would also go, um, I would go to an, uh, an island too. Ooh. I think that that would be a good one too. I would go to some island, Caribbean or like the Canary Islands or somewhere. And then that would be a good option too. I love it. All right. Well, Margie and I will be back in January with our 60th episode. Thanks so much. Just for when Heather turned 60. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> Not even close. Thank you. <laughs> If you like what you've heard, please leave us a review and share us. It can be your little gift to us. We'll love you forever. We're exchanging. We're secret Santas. I like it. (laughs) And if your review is bad, oh my God, Krampus. I'm going to send Krampus to you. That's what I'm going to do this time. If if your review is bad, Krampus is coming for you. <laughs> and if you want to join us twice a month for Kidlet discussions, please subscribe to the Two Lit Mamas podcast through any of the places you get your podcasts. And if you want to find out what's happening in our little worlds, you can follow us on TWO Lit Mamas podcast on Instagram, Two Lit Mamas on Facebook, and on our website, www.twolitmamas.com. Happy holidays. Happy holidays. Bye. Bye.